Wait, what? So this happened. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast Hell is Not the End, although it feels like just the beginning sometimes. Is anything really the end, though? This podcast is meant to explore the limitless possibilities of one's own soul. Why do people do bad things? Why are there countless happenings beyond understanding? Why, when we are cautioned not to do something, do we just do it anyway? The definition of curiosity, a strong desire to know or learn something. There you have it. I will curiously explore why. Hell is not the end. In 1976, Eugene Mulvihill and his company Great American Recreation, the owners of the recently combined Vernon Valley Great Gorge Ski Area, decided to find a way to bring some revenue in the sleepy off-season summer time of a bustling ski area. They would be following the ideas of other ski areas who seemed to have the same concerns in the summer months. A 2,700-foot alpine slide would be opened down one of the steep ski trails, but on May 26, 1978, the ambitions for the summertime became so much more. Two water slides are added, as well as go-kart track. This collection of rides would reside under the name of Vernon Valley Summer Park. The next summer, more water slides and a deep water swimming pool, tennis courts, and a softball field would be added to the Water World section of Action Park. In 1980, Motor World was created, carved out the swampy lands owned by the ski area across Route 94. Combined, these areas formed one North American's earliest modern water parks. This park that started with the Alpine Slide and two water slides would morph into 75 rides, including 35 motorized, self-controlled rides and 40 water slides. Action Park's most successful years would be in the early and mid-1980s. The rides that were operating had not yet earned their dangerous reputations. In 1982, two guests died within a week of each other, leading to a permanent closure of one ride. Didn't seem to matter to park goers who continued to show up. In 1984, brings the death of two more people. Legal and financial problems stem from pending lawsuits. A state investigation of misconduct in the lease of the state land to Action Park led to a 110 count grand jury indictment against nine related companies that ran the park, including the executives for operating a fake insurance company. Many would take pre-trial intervention in hopes to avoid any type of prosecution. CEO Eugene Mulvihill pleads guilty to five charges of insurance fraud. Still, park attendance remained steady and profits were strong, at least on paper anyways. The park saw attendance of at least 1 million per year. Some weekends boasted 12,000 in attendance. So in turn, park officials stated that the death rate was statistically insignificant. Tell that to family members who expected to see their family members after a day of proposed fun but was hit in the face with gross safety negligence. But the statistics? Whatevers. The closest hospital claimed they treated anywhere between 5 to 10 victims of accidents on the park's busy days. The park would soon need to buy the township of Vernon's extra ambulances to keep up with the volume of these injuries. In September 1989, a deal for the sale of the ski area in Action Park was negotiated 
but fell through due to the fact it was an unsuitable site upon further inspections. You think? They were probably just sweating and dodging bullets. Hello, me. Meet the real me. Hindsight always being 2020, they didn't know what they didn't know until they did. Well, not yet. By the 1990s, Action Park was being advertised as the largest water park. The park launches a website where visitors could then find information on rides, directions to the park, lodging, not to mention a chance to enter a lottery to win free park tickets. In 1991, a failed attempt was launched to legalize games of skill and chance of Action Park. A petition was signed and rejected due to the fact that the majority of the signatures for the request were by unregistered voters. After that, a few rides close, dismantle, and, dis and disappear. Costly settlements and rising insurance premiums. Wait, I thought his insurance company was fake. When did fake become so expensive? And the park's attendance is not as steady. This is due to recession and not to injuries. Why would that be a reason? In 1995, both the ski area and Action Park would be operated without insurance. Fake or not. The state of New Jersey didn't require it. Apparently, it was cheaper to go to court for any incidents that pay for insurance. In 1995, liability insurance is purchased, but as the year progressed, the bank that lent the ski area the Action Park money would push for closure for their unpaid debts. You know, how the park decided it was cheaper not to pay for insurance and it said deal with the incidents in court? Well, they neglected to pay legal fees for such superiority. Another bank would purchase the park's debt, very temporarily pausing the immediate foreclosure. In 1996, Credit petitions try and force Great American Recreation into bankruptcy. The struggling company, owning well over $14 million in debt, would file for Chapter 11 protection, but they would remain super optimistic that all would be well soon. Again, financially and better than ever, the 1996 season closes as normal. As the 1997 summer season loomed, the opening date was pushed back three times before reality hit and the jig was up. Great American Recreation becomes no more. The same year the ski area and Action Park is purchased and renovated. In 1998, InterWest purchased the property of the ski area and Action Park, opens the summer season as Mountain Creek Water Park, only leaving the revamped water park section functioning and demolish the rest of the park including Motorworld and the Alpine Center, where the Alpine Slide lived. So there are many injuries at Action Park, way too many to list. Plus, the fact that these injuries simply aren't listed as I could tell you if I wanted to anyways. The Alpine Slide would be the site of the very first death at the park. On July 8, 1980, a 19-year-old George Larson Jr., who had been reported for years as having worked at the ski area slide in the previous winter season. He was thrown from the track when he, his sled jumped the track and his head struck a rock on landing. The brake on his slide was broken, causing his sled to jump the track. 
His injury sent him into a coma and soon killing him. CEO Eugene Mulvihill will victim shame George saying that he was an employee of Action Park and not the ski area, which neither was true, and that he broke the rules by riding the Alpine side at night after hours and that it was also raining. Since he was a quote employee, his death does not need to be recorded into the state regulations. George's family, of course, disputes his own negligence on this matter, claiming the park's higher-ups were covering up their own interests. The Alpine slide would be a part of 14 fractures and 26 head injuries between 1984 and 1985. As for the other years, it simply doesn't say. It was an early site for injuries, lawsuits, and citations for safety violations. The tidal wave pool, nicknamed by park goers as the Grave Pool, would be a site to two deaths and the second death at the park. The pool was 100 feet wide and 200 feet long and could hold anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people. Waves were generated for 20 minutes at a time with 10-minute intervals and waves reaching 40 inches in height. On July 24, 1982, 15-year-old George Lopez drowns in the wave pool. In the grave pool, when the water reaches shoulder length, is called the death zone by the lifeguards. Described as people grabbing whoever was around them and would take each other down or flood the ladders and create a panic situation. Although there were 12 lifeguards on duty at all times, saving struggling swimmers happened at least 30 minutes a shift, according to some. Lifeguards reported that you couldn't take your eyes off the water for one second due to the murkiness of the water, that they had to stop the waves every few minutes just to check for bodies that may be at the bottom of the pool. Five years later, a man named Gregory Grandchamp strands FYI, the lifeguard chair that sits overlooking the wave pool, is nicknamed the death chair. The same week, 15-year-old swimmer dies in the grave pool. On August 1st, 1982, 27-year-old Jeffrey Nathan is killed while on the kayak experience. It was an attraction that would carry 20 kayaks along a thousand feet of rapids. The rapids were generated with underwater fans. The kayaks were known to either get stuck or flip over. In Jeffrey's case, the kayak flips over. While he is in the water trying to return to his kayak, one of the underwater fans short circuits and electrocutes him. He goes into cardiac arrest and dies shortly after. Several of his family members that were nearby all were also injured. Since there were no burns on his body, the park disputes the electric current caused his death. However, in water-based electrocution, there wouldn't be any burns. Also, the size of the exposed wire comes into question. The ride is drained during the investigation. The park claims it was a nick, while it was claimed by others to be 8 inches long. The incidents would lead to permanent closure of the kayak experience. The park wouldn't take responsibility for his death, but said the closure of the ride was due to the ride's intimidation. In 1984, a man suffers a fatal heart attack dropping to the pool below the Tarzan swing. It is thought that the man possibly died from the shock of the cold water. The pool was filled with natural spring water and was typically 30 degrees colder than the other pools in the park. 
The grave pool would claim two more lives. On August 27, 1984, 20-year-old from Brooklyn drowns. On July 19, 1987, an 18-year-old drowns. One of the craziest ride statistics I read involved an enclosed water slide ride called the Cannibal Loop. It was only open for one month in 1985 due to many bloody noses and back injuries reported by riders. It wasn't open very often, just a few days here and there throughout the years, and then closed after injuries were again reported. Creepy note. It was said that CEO Eugene Mulvihill would bribe employees with $100 bills to get them to test the ride. Rumor has it that in the test phase of this ride, test dummies would be sent through the ride and came out either dismembered or decapitated. Once opened, many injuries of bloody noses and random cuts and scrapes by an unknown source. One rider gets stuck due to the lack of water flow and that part of the loop is removed to figure out the problem. What is the source of these mysterious cuts and scrapes? Well, I'll tell you. Teeth. Turns out the design of this ride is so bad, there is a spot where people would hit their faces, maybe get a bloody nose, maybe lose a tooth. You know, the huge. Enter the Conspiracy Corner. strange to me that so many injuries had gone on for two decades with little or no accountability. It seems pretty selfish on the part of the owners, investors, and employees. Why when injuries occurred, were they not reported? Why when deaths occurred, were they not reported? How important does an accident need to be to be reported? Poor designs, cutting corners, the lack of proper testing, Inexperienced teenage park employees rumored to be intoxicated while working? Growing up in Los Angeles, I have never heard of Action Park before. If you knew me at all, you'd know that I find amusement parks fascinating. I'd admit that as much as I love the beach and love the water, I loathe water parks. The people that go to water parks and can't swim have always confused me. My hope is that no one has to live in fear, ever. As always, I will never give up and read the signs. Special thanks to all the reading materials I could get my hands on, internet mostly. Thanks to HBO Max, Pinball Party Productions, Wikipedia.org, and Decider.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Rachel Valles-Nor, and this is the podcast, Hell is Not the End. <laughs>